Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Sunday, August 9th, 2020. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. Week four of 2020 fantasy baseball waivers as we move through the third week of this fantasy baseball season. Beller, I had this feeling yesterday that it actually was August in a regular baseball season. Even though we'd played just over two weeks of games entering play yesterday, it kind of, in my mind, it felt like we'd already gone through the grind of fantasy baseball for four months, even though we've only done this for really four weeks of pickups. Uh, we went through a much different, much worse grind. Maybe that's why it feels that way. But I, <laughs> I totally hear you. It also feels like there's the sort of level of attrition that we would be having in a normal season two at this point with all the injuries, especially that we've uh, seen happen uh, for pitchers. It just does feel as though we're talking about the same level of player uh, on the waiver wire that we would be in a normal season. We're just doing it for much different, much less fun reasons. And I think even though we knew that quick decisions were going to be a big part of the baseball season as a whole for major league teams, but for us as fantasy players, it's still very difficult to go through the process after two weeks worth of games, or even less in the case of you know the Cardinals and the Marlins, some of the other teams that have been impacted by COVID thus far. Uh, but this week, you know, it's a decent group of players in the waiver wire. I don't know if there's as much high-end talent as we had to discuss last week. I think it's a slightly less inspiring group of pitchers. Uh, but there are closers, there are starters, there's a few two-start guys that we talked about on Friday who are still pretty interesting. And there are actually a couple bats that have emerged to be in better positions, at least in the short term, than I expected. Mike Talkman, when I wrote the article for the site, uh, he looked like a guy that you couldn't really roster in a lot of mixed leagues, but Giancarlo Stanton suffered a hamstring injury on Saturday during a doubleheader with the Rays. In, prior to recording, he was just placed on the injured list, so we did get confirmation that that moved happened. So we're talking about at least a week, actually 10 days, before Giancarlo Stanton's going to be able to play again. I think it puts Mike Talkman firmly back on the mixed league radar, and the amazing thing here is because he wasn't playing enough, he's only 20% rostered in NFBC main event leagues. Those are competitive 15-team leagues. So you start getting into 10- and 12-team leagues that start five outfielders. He should be very widely available there as well. Are there any reservations for you in picking up Talkman with Stanton out for the next 10 days? No, and even if you know it's maybe, or you don't know, but even if it turns out to be just a 10-day ad, I think that's totally fine. I actually, in one league, picked up Mike Talkman just specul speculatively uh, on I think it was Saturday morning. I had one more move I could make for the week. I had a lot of guys in, uh, with the day-to-day -day tag, and I said, all right, I could use some steals. Let's throw Talkman on there, and now I'm going to be keeping him for at least a couple of weeks here because of this Stanton injury. You mentioned the fact he hasn't been playing a whole lot, but still four stolen bases. I mean, this guy is running quite a bit, and we know how uh, speed is not an easy thing to find these days. Uh, he's got a 310 batting average, a 355 OBP. Uh, last year, hit 13 homers in just shy of 300 plate appearances, so there's a little bit of power here as well. But that speed is very attractive. The Yankees lineup, we know, is very attractive, even with Stanton out of it. Uh, no reservations whatsoever for me. I think Talkman is the most attractive, widely available bat. There could be someone in your specific league better than Talkman, but if we're just talking about widely available guys, I think he is going to be the easy number one bat to be going after today. Yeah, breaking the fourth wall momentarily. I think one of the most challenging things about writing a waiver column and hosting a waiver podcast is that every league is a little bit different. There are some players who are not really supposed to be available who are available because there was somebody who just had to make a difficult decision and they let a player go who's widely owned. But I would agree with you. Talkman kind of just stands out, especially over the group of players I wrote about in the ads and drops column this week. Uh, but one thing I think you want to do as you pick up Mike Talkman is consider the possibility if anybody else gets hurt while Stanton is hurt and that injury extends even longer than Stanton's absence, Talkman could be a permanent sort of fixture in your lineup. It, it's not necessarily a guaranteed temporary situation, just given the injury histories of a lot of the players in that outfield. And uh, again, Talkman, I think, does a little bit of everything, like you said. Stat cast numbers are pretty good. Plate discipline's pretty good. Obviously, the home park is very good for him as well. So he'd be at the top of my list uh, as far as widely available hitters as well. Uh, the next guy I want to talk about is not a player I expect to talk about on any waiver episode because I don't think he's great, but Todd Frazier is actually kind of hitting in the heart of the order for the Rangers. Still has a little bit of power left. The Rangers have a road trip coming up to Colorado on top of that, so the schedule is very favorable as well. He kind of ticks all the boxes, and he enters Sunday 
in the middle of a five-game hitting streak, four multi-hit efforts during that span, a little bit of a, a late career resurgence, but I guess if you look at the numbers from a, from a season ago, Todd Frazier was a better player than most people, at least me, more better player than I was giving him credit for a year ago. He had 21 homers and just 499 plate appearances. You know, hit 251, which is absolutely passable in this environment. Got on base at a 329 clip as well. Uh, so definitely one of those guys. He kind of fits into the old and boring bucket with Kyle Seeger and Evan Longoria. But based on where those guys hit in their orders and just the fact that they have a little bit left in the tank makes them very appealing players where they're available. Yeah, I think it's a, an easy guy to like for the reasons that you said, and obviously not someone who's going to suddenly turn it on and carry you to a fantasy championship this year. But Todd Frazier, over the last few years, uh, his, those two years he spent with the Mets, he basically does what he does, right? He's going to give you a decent power. He's going to uh, hit for, as you said, passable average, most likely. Right now he's hitting 311 this season. We know that's not going to last forever, but it's probably, you have good reason to believe, especially uh, with, uh, I believe I saw league-wide batting average coming into play on Sunday is at 231, so uh, not a very high bar to clear, and I feel like Todd Frazier is going to clear that one with relative ease. You, you factor in the power that he brings to the table, that he plays every single day, really no playing time concerns here. Uh, the first third eligibility, so you can move him around if need be, and there is plenty of moving around necessary in this 2020 season. Uh, like you said, ticks pretty much every single box you're looking for as long as you're being realistic if he doesn't tick the Mike Trout box but as long as you're realistic about what you're going to get in the waiver wire uh, you've got Todd Frazier ticking every single one that you're going to be looking for yeah good call on that league batting average 231 is woeful and I think we're going to see that tick up a little bit I think it's pretty clear that the hitters are just behind the pitchers and sort of have been since things ramped back up but uh, it really gives you a good idea of where the the bar is right now as you're looking at hitters definitely lower than it might be uh, in a typical season. And aside from that matchup you know, in Colorado against the Rockies, yeah. which comes up next weekend, three at home against Seattle's pitching is not bad either. Justin Dunn, Marco Gonzalez, Taiwan Walker. There's really none of those starters that scare you. It's a bullpen that's a kind of a mess as well. So a really nice-looking week for Rangers hitters as a whole. And Frazier, uh, only about 40% owned in main event leagues. Uh, we talked about Ben Gamble, I think, a little bit last week. He's played basically every day since Lorenzo Cain opted out, so there's not a whole lot new to add there. But one thing that did strike me is that there's a chance he ends up leading off for this team. Uh, in the game on Saturday, it was a Brewers-Reds matchup. Eric Sogard was the DH. He continues to lead off, and I know Sogard gets on base a lot better, but something's just not right with this Brewers offense. Uh, obviously, you know, Ryan Braun being on the IL, in addition to the Kane opt-out, in addition to Garcia being a little banged up this week, in addition to Christian Yelich being in a slump. Like, it's easy to see how this has become a lineup that people are picking on. There's a bit of swing and miss up and down the lineup as well. But I think one thing we want to keep in mind when we look at players like Ben Gamble is how much of a path do they have to a more prominent lineup spot. Nothing's guaranteed because of the moving parts that the Brewers have put together around him. But he is a guy that, as we mentioned last week, he has a revamp swing. He has the plate skills to be at least a contender to lead off if someone like Sogard's not in the lineup. And as things get more crowded in the infield, eventually Luis Urias is going to play and probably play a lot for this team. That might bump Sogard out of regular duty, and this team might be looking for a leadoff hitter. So whether that's Gamel or Urias or someone else, that remains to be seen. But I think this is a good lineup when things are working. And there is definitely some what could go right here with Ben Gamble now that he's found a lot more playing time. I think he, <clears throat> excuse me, I think he needs that to uh, really justify the uh, value that we hope that he has. It's hard to get excited about him hitting in the bottom third of what has been to this season, uh, to this point of the season, uh, not one of the better offenses in the league. Um, and just when you look back over uh, the career numbers for Gamble, there's not a lot to feel great about in that bottom third of the lineup. So I would love to see him get an opportunity toward the top and I think that if you're if you're picking on the waiver wire this week then realistically he's going to be one of the better bats available to you beggars can't be choosers in this week's format or in this week's environment that we're looking at but I do think that he's someone who I would be not super excited about definitely feeling much better about Talkman and Frazier than I would be about Gamble on this waiver day yeah, there's a pretty big break, I think, in terms of talent between those first two guys and most of the rest of the guys we're going to talk about. Um, you know, I mentioned the Rockies having a series against the Rangers next weekend. They're home all week, and that's really good news for their hitters. I think there are two guys you can get in a lot of different leagues right now. Uh, Matt Kemp, obviously outfield eligible at this point, 
and Chris Owings, a player who I really don't like at all. Let's start with Matt Kemp for a second. I mean, I think if you're talking about a temporary ad, Kemp at home for a possible six-game week is better than Ben Gamble. So if you're filling a very temporary absence and you're looking at contingency bids and you're, you're going to have someone coming back maybe a week from now, going the Kemp route actually makes sense. It'll probably cost you a little bit less in fab as well. Uh, how much does the long game versus the short-term schedule weigh into your decision-making? I mean, do you try to use the waiver wire as... <clears throat> an extended bench, if you will, and say, you know what, even though Gamble's got more playing time, probably locked up for the next month, Kemp's next week just looks better. Are you trying to manage it more week to week, or are you trying to manage it more long-term when you start looking past the first like high-end options that might be available in any given week? Yeah, that's the key part there, what you said right at the end, past the high-end options. Once we get past those guys, then I am definitely much more interested in the short-term and what someone can do for me immediately, because chances are, Gamble, Kemp, Owings, anyone else who is in that range of players that you might be thinking about picking up right now, chances are that person is going to be off your team in two weeks. There's a strong chance of that. Maybe they, you know, get hot and uh, find something and prove that wrong and stick for on your team for a month or, you know, the rest of the season. But the best bet is that that person is going to be contributing to your team in the short term. And then you're going to find someone else who can, can give you those same sort of short term contributions. So uh, when we get to this class of player, I consider my, I concern myself much more with what they're going to do for me over the next, could be even just three days, five days, one week, rather than what I think they could maybe do a month down the line. And I agree with you. If I had to have someone on my team for a month, I would probably rather have Ben Gamble than Matt, Matt Kemp. But with the Rockies playing at home all week, uh, two homers already this season, for Matt Kemp and 37 plate appearances, I think he's a relatively easy choice to make over Gamble. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that gives me a little bit of pause, it's only two left-handed starters. It's not a strict platoon situation for Kemp. He's playing a little bit more than that. So I would say in a six-game week, you might only be getting five games from him. That's still five games at Coors might be worth seven games in some other parks, just depending on how those play out. So... Uh, those are two guys that, that stood out to me who ordinarily I'd have almost no interest in, especially Chris Owings. Like, I don't believe in Chris Owings at all. I, I cannot figure out what the Rockies are doing. They're playing him more than they're playing Garrett Hampson right now, which doesn't seem smart because Chris Owings is not a part of your future. Garrett Hampson at least could be. You know, you've got Brendan Rodgers still at the alternate training site, so he's not even with the big club. I don't know. Owings has always had this interesting power-speed combination going back to his time as a Diamondbacks prospect, but he's never had great plate skills. He's at least worked on that in recent years. He's up to like a career 8% walk rate in the big leagues. All of this is about Coors. Like he's hitting in the bottom third of the order. I don't think he has the upward mobility that we talked about with Ben Gamble in Milwaukee where things could change and suddenly Chris Owings is the Rockies' leadoff guy. I don't really think that's in the cards. and They have three or four other options they would consider yes. before they get to that. But as short-term pickups go, I'm interested. I'm 100% mm -hmm. interested. I think if you are reeling from losing Ozzy Albies this week, you need some help up the middle. Owings should be eligible at both second base and shortstop, so you get a little extra flexibility there. I think he could actually sort of hide a lot of his flaws this week, just given the six games at home. Yeah, I mean, everything you said uh, and everything we said about Kemp applies to Owings here. You're not going to be keeping him for more than probably this week, but the Garrett Hampson is not suddenly going to be taking away playing time. Brendan Rodgers not likely to be coming up from the alternate site anytime soon. So he's going to play. He's going to get six games at Coors. That is in itself a reason to pick a guy up. So I think that he is someone who, uh, whether it's an Ozzy Albies thing or maybe you're just looking for some production up the middle, uh, definitely someone who should be on your radar if you are in that camp. Now, catcher is the only other spot I wanted to touch on real quick. I just I hate writing up catchers. I hate yeah. playing the waiver wire to find them. Uh, Francisco Cervelli is the guy that kind of stood out to me this week as someone who's just playing a lot because Jorge Alfaro, of course, on the IL for the Marlins. I think we kind of know what Cervelli is at this stage of his career. He has occasional power, but not enough to really be a big difference maker in that category. Decent plate skills. He's not going to hurt you in batting average. He's basically limited to two catcher leagues, though. I, I don't see mm -hmm. Francisco Cervelli as a top 15 catcher, even with a large share of playing time in Miami while Alfaro is out. And I think when you start looking at some of the alternatives, people have asked a lot of questions about uh, Max Stassi hitting a ton of home runs, but he's sharing time with Jason Castro. There's Chadwick Tromp in San Francisco. He's sharing time with Tyler Heineman. You know, Sandy Leone doesn't really hit enough. He's 
temporarily starting in place of Roberto Perez. I think the only somewhat available catcher who I'm interested in more than Cervelli is Austin Nola, and he's already picked up in a ton of two-catcher leagues. He doesn't only play catcher, so that certainly helps his playing time a little bit. But it's a mess at that position right now. If you punted catcher and you've been hoping to find some playing time on the wire, it's really come mostly in the form of guys who are stuck in clear timeshares or straight platoons. Yeah, it's just a really, really ugly position this season. And another uh, checkmark, I think, in favor of getting rid of two catcher leagues and just making one catcher the standard. I mean, who won that? Like, I know we love tradition in this sport, both real life and fantasy, but uh, I just can't get myself excited about a two-catcher league at all. Who wants to be uh, rostering Francisco Cervelli? No no offense, Francisco. I'm sure he's a very, very nice person, but we shouldn't be talking about guys like this in a fantasy context. If you need help with the position, I agree that he, Austin Nola, would be the one who would be a little bit more interesting to me, but like you said, he's already getting scooped up. Uh, Cervelli at least has that short-term playing time locked up, so hey, Marlins are playing well too. Why not throw uh, throw a few bucks at it if you need the help? But uh, otherwise, start pushing your leagues to play one catcher only next year. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on that. I think the other catcher thought I've had kind of started late last Sunday. Dalton Varsho is up for the Diamondbacks. He's barely playing right now, but this is a team that is not hitting the ball at all. They're 27th in WRC plus to this point with a 75. So they've been 25% worse than a league average offense. Uh, Cleveland's down there with them. Pittsburgh, Texas also really struggling at the plate right now. Dalton Varsho can play more than catcher. He can play positions of value. He can play center field, which is really interesting. He has power. He has speed. He played really well at the double-A level last year. If you're in a two-catcher league, especially like a 15-team two-catcher league, and you're looking at all these other guys who they get hot for a week, but they're still sharing a job, and you're looking at Dalton Varsho, who might not be playing a lot right now, but if he starts playing more, is clearly better than any waiver wire catcher. Are you comfortable taking less production and losing a little bit in counting stats in the short term to have the possibility of getting a lot more in the long term? Because it seems like if they're going to start tweaking some things in Arizona to get some life into this offense, mm-hmm. we got to be close to that point. Like it, Teams got to make decisions quickly just like we do, and Dalton Varsho, I think, can actually help this offense. Yeah, I think that's a great call by you. I think that's someone who would be more interesting to me than Cervelli, than Austin Nola, because of what he could do, you know, across the board for you. And once he's in there, once he's getting regular playing time, I don't see them going back on it, even if things don't work out, right? I mean, Diamondbacks need to start taking some chances, need to get some life into this offense, and Dalton Varsho is someone who's going to be part of that team for a long time. I mean, you know, they hope that he is part of that next good Diamondbacks team, that next big contender in Arizona. So once they commit to him as a regular, I can't see him. I mean, he could go 0 for 30, and I don't think that maybe they'd sit him down for a day, but he's going to be a regular once they commit to that. So I do like that. And there's something to be said for uh, your, yeah, of course, your counting stat production is just naturally going to come down. But there's a little to be said, I think, for uh, having someone who's playing less, not hurting your ratios as much. If you really are squeezing a second catcher in there, that person is probably hurting your ratios, even in a season where it's hard to hurt ratios. Uh, so at least uh, someone who is not out there can't do that to your ratios. Yeah, and I think with catchers, I mean, the threshold for regular playing time is, is quite a bit lower. I mean, what you mm-hmm. get from that spot might be three to four starts per week. So you're not giving up a, a six or seven start per week player. Like if you have a prospect in an active outfield slot who's not playing that much, that obviously hurts you a lot more because there's so much right. playing time that you're missing out on. You're missing out on less if you do that with the catcher position. So I think Dalton Varsho as a cheap ad in the right circumstances absolutely makes sense despite the fact that he hasn't played a lot yet. They have to do something to get the offense going. Uh, keeping the theme with some top prospects, one who will have a role Probably beyond his first major league start on Sunday, let's move to the pitchers, Spencer Howard. I think Spencer Howard was a guy that I had just sort of connected to Nate Pearson value-wise throughout draft season because I thought both were going to be up very soon after the season began. You know, both have really good stuff. Both have the polish to maybe have success right away at the big league level. The tricky thing here is that the Phillies have a lot of doubleheaders coming up on their schedule, so I think they need a six-starter more than the typical team needs a six-starter. I think we talked about Vince Velasquez a little bit on Friday's show. He's one of those guys that I just think he's on his way out of the rotation at this point. So you bump Velasquez, and even if you go down to a five-man rotation, Spencer Howard should be in it. We don't know what that first start looks like. We're recording this at 10 o'clock in the morning, so... 
we have no idea if he goes out, pitches well, or if he gets shelled, or if he goes short, or if he's able to go like a normal starter, but how much are you going to push for Spencer Howard in your leagues where he's available this week? I think I'm going to push pretty significantly hard for him. He's the sort of guy who can be a real difference maker, and even in a season like this, uh, those guys aren't just sitting out there readily available for you to find week after week after week. So uh, really, regardless of what he does in this start today, I think I'm going to be pretty comfortable committing a sizable portion of my remaining fab budget to get him. Uh, We know that this is a guy who uh, the Phillies believe can be a front of their rotation starter and probably sooner rather than later. Another guy who I think that, you know, results aren't going to matter too much in terms of how this team commits to him. I agree with you that Vince Velasquez is pitching his way out of the rotation and into a bullpen role where he can really thrive. It's not just that uh, he has proven year after year that he's probably not really cut out to be a regular starter, but that he also can be a very good reliever. So I think that it's got just as much to do with that as it does to do with the fact that he just isn't consistent enough to remain in this team's rotation. Uh, and that just makes it even easier for Philadelphia to commit to Spencer Howard, regardless of what he does, uh, that this is someone who they know is a part of their future. And it just seems silly to yo-yo him, you know, whether it's uh, the alternate camp in the majors, the bullpen and the rotation. Like, let's just commit to this guy as a starter and let's keep him in the rotation. Everything he's shown us in the minors suggests that he can fulfill that front of rotation uh, upside and relatively soon. Uh, so I think the fact that you're just not going to find too many guys like this the rest of the year, even if it ends up falling flat for him, you got to take that opportunity. You got to take what feels like a little bit of a calculated risk because if things do go well, not even, you know, 99th percentile well, but if things go 85th percentile well for Spencer Howard, you've got yourself a very good starting pitcher for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in 12 and 15 team leagues, you're going to see some uh, triple digit bids in leagues with $1,000 budgets. I think you're going to have to spend at least like 5 to 7% in a 12 team league with an up arrow if he pitches well on Sunday as much as one outing shouldn't influence bidding it does if he comes out and has six or seven strikeouts and just looks really good that's going to push it up even further in a 15 teamer I've got him at seven to 12 percent which I know is a pretty wide range you got to know your league really well and decide how aggressive you have to be but that could easily get to the 15 to 20 percent range and it it wouldn't surprise me so uh, I just I'd like pitcher a lot maybe the setup's not ideal because Philadelphia is a difficult place to pitch but he pitched really well at high A and double A last season and looked great in the Arizona Fall League to wrap up his 2019 I think I'm forbidden from talking more about Tyler Molly so (laughs) I'm just going to mention him again in case you didn't listen to the Friday episode it's a two-start week and it's a very good two-start week with the uh, Royals and Pirates on tap I mean you can't ask for more than that even if you don't believe in the skills even if you're skeptical of him in a broader sense you want this two-start week. You would throw a top 75 starting pitcher with confidence in that situation. So I think Molly can actually be a little better than that. But again, it's all about the matchups as it goes with him. Uh, one guy that popped up on Saturday with a great performance, he pitched really well against Oakland, is Framber Valdez. This, this Houston team has been just decimated by injuries. You look at the matchups for the upcoming week. He will miss San Francisco to begin the week, but he will catch Seattle at home for his next start. It's a similar line of thinking to what we just described with Tyler Molly. I think you can have some questions about the skills. I think with Valdez, he tends to have a high walk rate. That could be problematic. You know, you put a lot of traffic on the bases. Bad things can happen. He's probably more of a streamer for me because of the Seattle matchup. If you look a little further down the road, the Astros go into Colorado and it's part of a home-and-home series. Valdez happens to catch them in Colorado, so he's pretty much unusable next week. But in the upcoming week, home against Seattle, I absolutely want that start. So I want to bid kind of aggressively because I think it'll be a really good outing, but I don't want to bid as though I'm going to hold on to him because there's a very good chance if I need to cut anybody going into next week that Valdez is right back off the roster as I try and keep churning over that spot. It's definitely possible, but I think he could end up being more than a streamer. You mentioned the great start against Oakland. His outing previous to that was not a start. He came in in relief against the Angels and pitched very well. Six and a third relief innings for Amber Valdez threw in that game. Uh, Just gave up one unearned run on five hits, one walk, eight strikeouts. I mean, he really dealt in that one also. So I understand the concerns with him, of course, especially the, uh, the walk issues that he's had in his recent past. But with those two outings that he's put together back-to-back, I think he ends up, or could end up, 
being a little bit more than a streamer. Probably not someone you want to throw out there every single uh, start. Obviously, uh, if you were to keep him around your team beyond the Seattle start, you would probably put him on the bench for that Colorado start. But I do think someone who you can keep on your team. So I'm with you in terms of uh, being willing to throw a a few extra dollars than what seems he has justified to this point, Uh, not only because of the fact that he's got this great matchup with Seattle, and as you said, I think even that is enough, but just with the possibility that he ends up being someone who proves worthy of sticking around on your roster beyond this outing. Yeah, I think at least in 15-team leagues, I'm with you on the the hold and reserve plan for the Colorado star. I think in 12s, you may have to just harder, yeah. boot him up. It's, it's a, he's really close. He's right on that borderline that it just depends on the health of your team and, and what you need to accomplish. But uh, I do like Framber Valdez, at least for the upcoming week against Seattle. So I, I would say if I'm trying to compare him to other players that I put in the column this week, He's a little behind Molly because it's a two-start week for Molly, but not that far off skills-wise, at least right now. I mean, if you're comfortable bidding 80 90 even $100 out of 1000 on Molly, you should be comfortable bidding 50 to 70 probably on Valdez, and hopefully that's enough to actually get it done. But just, again, bid knowing that you're not going to have him active after this week, after that Seattle start. You're not going to throw him on the road against the Rockies. Uh, Randy Dobnik was a guy that we talked about a bit on the Friday episode, just another guy that has a two-start week, and I'm fully willing to go against that Brewers lineup until they start to wake up, until they start to show us that there's a reason not to stream against them, and I think the one thing that continues to catch my eye every time I look at the leaderboards for team strikeout rate, the Brewers are third in team strikeout rate, and I think even when they put runs on the board, they're going to be a lineup that has a lot of swing and miss in it. And I think that bodes particularly well for, you know, mid-range sort of starters who aren't necessarily great at striking guys out, which is exactly what Randy Dobnik is. Like, Randy Dobnik is not on your fantasy team for the strikeouts. He's there for the ratios and the win probability. And when he gets a matchup where a team swings and misses a lot, those are the days where he might be able to get four or five strikeouts over the course of a five-inning start. Yeah, exactly. And then in line for a second start on Sunday against the Royals. So uh, this could be a very nice two-step for Dobnik this week. And important point you made. I mean, we talked about you you pretty much hit every point on Dobnik. We talked about him on Friday's show also. So I'm going to just pivot to the Brewers. Even when things come around for them, and things are going to come around for them, Christian Yelich isn't going to hit like 090 all season or whatever it is that he's hitting right now. Like, they're going to be okay. I'm not too worried about that offense. But there's still plenty of swing and miss in the offense. It's sort of like what we talked about on Friday's show with the White Sox. Uh, a very good offense, a lot of power. But you could have a pitcher go up against them, give up a couple of runs, get burned by a couple of homers, but still come out of it with like eight strikeouts in six innings. So it's not a team that you necessarily are going to want to be too concerned about facing, even when the bats do start to come around. Yeah, and I think you do want to look carefully at the pitching matchups when you have a pitcher going up against the Brewers. I think their back-end rotation starters are a mess right now. Brett Anderson pitched on Saturday. He didn't pitch that well. Eric Lauer didn't look very good on Friday. Even though they follow those guys with Corbin Burns and Freddie Peralta and some really interesting multi-inning guys, they can be had, and that, that, that leaves them vulnerable to losing games that they shouldn't lose, and it helps your fantasy pitchers pick up wins that ordinarily you wouldn't expect them to pick up. So definitely not afraid of at MIL right now when I'm looking <laughs> at mid-level pitchers, and that's often the case. It's easy, that's usually a, a matchup that I'm avoiding. I don't, I don't usually want to mess with that Brewers offense whatsoever. I'm still intrigued by Bryce Wilson. I think we may have mentioned him on the Friday episode as well. I think the Braves have to do something to shore up the back of the rotation, but we don't know for sure if it's going to be Wilson or Ian Anderson or Tucker Davidson. And this comes down to just purely trusting the organization as far as whoever they bring up because they would line up for a potential start against the Marlins at the end of the upcoming week. That's a streamable spot despite the Marlins success. So the thing I like about Bryce Wilson has a pretty good fastball mixes in three other secondary pitches. I think he's just too fastball dependent right now. At least he was last year. So what I want to see if they do call him up, I want to see the pitch mix start to change. I want to see him get more comfortable throwing those secondary pitches because I think everything will play up if he can just get off the fastball a little bit. 
And this is one of those situations where the alternate camp and not having a real minor league season this year is hurting us in the fantasy world because even if he's been pitching in the minors all season, we would know what he was doing. We would know what he was working on, what he was working with, and the sort of pitch mix we should expect from him when he got to the majors. Now with the alternate camp, I mean, they can basically say anything they want, and we just sort of have to take him at face value for what's happening there. So I agree with you. Hopefully we would see that, and I still think that he's worth – uh, the speculative ad because of all the me- reasons you mentioned. Uh, we know the talent is there. Uh, the fastball, uh, while he does need to come off it a little bit, is good. The organization, strong. You would think he would have pretty decent win upside every single time he took the mound. So all those reasons, all those things make him worth going after. We just have to see the secondary stuff come in, or he could end up being someone who you end up cutting after he gets the call uh, if those secondaries just aren't working the way that they need to be able to work for him to be a successful pitcher this year. And to be clear, I think he's like a near-min-bid sort of player this week. I don't think you have to be aggressive at all. There's a lot of uncertainty for the reason you mentioned. We don't know how stretched out he is. We don't know how much the Braves are going to trust him to go through the lineup a second or third time initially. Uh, but there's enough there in terms of opportunity where you do want to speculate cheaply, especially in deeper mixed leagues where there could be a pretty nice payoff if Bryce Wilson can take that job and run with it. It seems like this week, compared to last week, uh, the closer corner is not quite as messy. We actually got some good news from the Rangers. Rafael Montero is the guy. They confirmed him as their new closer. He was on the IL when we spoke about the situation. I think it was last week, last Sunday. Yep. And it, you know, it was Jonathan Hernandez. Uh, and it was Nick Goody, and at the time, I was on the Goody side. I thought just based on usage, he had the slight upper hand. There wasn't much to separate those guys skills-wise. But Rafael Montero had a great season in this Rangers bullpen a year ago. Now that he's back and healthy, he's pitching very well. This could be really one of the better reliever pickups of the season because I think what we saw last year from him was largely real, and he's one of those guys that – He had this reputation for being an unreliable starter, had an elevated walk rate, just frustrated fantasy owners more often than not during his time with the Mets. Uh, But he comes back last year. It was only 29 innings, but K rate over 10, walk rate down in the 1.5 range. Had a little bit of a home run issue, but who didn't last year with the rabbit ball? I mean, this is a guy that... This is a guy that can be a ten, like a top ten sort of closer, I think, with the opportunity now. And you don't say that about most guys who get the opportunity for saves for the first time. You said it's just a twenty nine inning sample, and of course you have to say that. But I am much, I'm way more willing to give it credence, given the fact of who Rafael Montero you know, was earlier in his, earlier in his career and the sort of pitcher that he always had the ability to become. Right, the stuff was there. He had the seeming ability to become a brand of really great you know, starter, not just a reliever, but that was always in him somewhere. So even though it was just 29 innings, I give it a little bit more weight because it's not like this performance, this ability came out of nowhere in just 29 innings. That was there, and it just got put together, uh, of course, after missing the entire 2018 season too. So uh, I agree with you. Um, if he's out there, uh, even, you know, even if he didn't have that top 10 ceiling at the position, you would be going after him with a pretty good deal of aggressiveness because of the fact that he is not only closing games, but actually getting the nod, the thumbs up, the yes, he is our closer, which you're just not seeing a ton of here in 2020. But the strikeout stuff and the the ability to have those low ratios does give him that top 10 ceiling that makes him someone that, I mean, top to bottom, if I look back at all the pitchers we've talked about here, like, would you rather have him than Spencer Howard even? I mean, if you're just talking pitchers generally, I think maybe he's the most valuable guy for the rest of the season that we've talked about. There's definitely a chance that he's the best player rest of season that we've, we're discussing on this episode. That That's in the range of outcomes for him. We're talking about a guy that had a 25% K minus BB percentage last year. That's a great number to see. It, it gives you a really high floor. The ratios were excellent to go with the strikeouts. And I think as a former starter, I mean, aside from the massive uptick in velocity he's shown out of the pen compared to the last time we saw him as a starter, he was at 95.8 with the fastball last year. He's at 96 this year. In a year when a lot of pitchers have lost velo, he's actually up a tiny bit. I like that a former starter can turn to a third pitch sometimes as a reliever, even if they don't use it a lot. We saw it last season. It was a fastball change-up slider mix. He hasn't thrown the slider a lot yet in his first couple of appearances. But I like having closers that bring that one extra pitch that at least puts that little bit of doubt, that extra thought in the minds of opposing hitters. And I could see Montero being the the best reliever we've talked about on any waiver episode this season. I mean, yeah. 
you think about guys like Anthony Bass is a nice villain. He's, he's handled the job capably so far. Uh, but you think about the situation in Anaheim where Ty Butchery became the guy this week when Hansel Robles lost the job. I like Rafael Montero quite a bit more than Butchery, and I'm someone who kind of believes in Ty Butchery too if the velocity comes back. So this might be a situation where you got to kind of smash the fab piggy bank, so to speak, and mm-hmm. really go over the top with the bid. I think the, the recommendation in the article, it feels a little light because it came prior to the confirmation from the Rangers that he is, in fact, going to be their guy. And I think the more you look at him, the more you sort of like what he brings to the table. So if you told me you were going to bid 200 or 250 or even 300, if you're going to kind of go like to your high-end max and what you'd give a reliever in fab this week for Rafael Montero, like if you only had one closer right now and you didn't want to fall behind in saves, I wouldn't try to stop you from doing that. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And, you know, the Cardinals and Marlins notwithstanding, we are – you know, more than a fourth of the way through the season, too. So, uh, you know, you sort of got to think about it in that way also, just how much of the season is remaining, even though teams have only played these games where they're still, you know, figuring out who their closer might be, right? That has all the feelings of April, but we're already into the second week of August. It's not April, it's August. And so that's something that also you should be considering when you're making your bids and makes me that much more comfortable going to a very big number on Montero. Let's play a Sunday installment of, of Would You Rather. I'm going to throw some names at you of closers that have been picked up in recent weeks. This is one that came to me in the uh, comment section for ads and drops, but I think it makes a, a great podcast topic. For the rest of the season, would you rather have Rafael Montero or Ryan Presley? Ooh, very good one. Like them both a lot. I will still take Ryan Presley uh, with what we've seen the last two years. I just got to believe that he is going to get things right and be a very good closer for Houston the rest of the way. We agree on that one. Let's go to Rafael Montero versus the recently mentioned Anthony Bass. I'm going to go Montero there. Strikeout stuff wins for me in this one. And uh, too hard to predict if and when save opportunities are going to come for these mid-level teams. Uh, We're two for two as far as how we've got these guys prioritized so far. How about Montero versus Keone Kella as he gets closer to returning? Mm, I'm going to go Montero just because of the uncertainty with Kella. Obviously, he's going to be back soon. Um, We know that. uh, But a little bit of uncertainty. Pittsburgh, uh, of course, uh, a team that maybe we can uh, can surmise on the bad side is not going to give its closer a ton of save opportunities. They're not one of these middle-of-the-road teams. And maybe he's one of the few guys this year who could actually get traded to a competitor. So uh, we would have to assume if he does get traded, it's likely not to be a closer. Maybe it would be, but... Uh, you have to assume the worst, so I'm going to lean toward Montero, but I could see an argument for Kella where I really couldn't see one for Bass. Yeah, I, I have Kella last of the guys we've mentioned so far just because of the uncertainty, but on skills alone, he's probably right. second or third on this list if you take out all of the the other stuff that he brings, and I, I just worry that the other stuff actually impacts the role that he has. We'll do two more. Uh, Rafael Montero versus Rowan Wick. I'm going to go um, Montero there also. I just don't think that Wick is for sure going to be David Ross's guy every single chance that the Cubs get. I think that he maybe will get a plurality of save opportunities, but Jeremy Jeffress has looked pretty good in the chances he's had, and uh, uh, Ross has shown a lot of comfort in throwing Jeffress right into the fire. Like He's been in some high-leverage situations, coming in a lot with guys on base. So that, to me, suggests that David Ross really trusts him. So even though I would have to bet on Wick getting more opportunities, I don't think it's going to be an entirety, a whole ownership of that closer role the way that we have to assume Montero has right now. So I'll go Montero there. In my mind, I've got it like Wick Jeffress at like 75-25 for save chances, yeah, which is I think that's fair. you know enough enough for me to to prefer Wick to Anthony Bass and to prefer him to Kella at least until Kella has the job back. And the last one is is pretty tricky just because of the way this team has managed its bullpen so far. Rafael Montero versus Trevor Rosenthal for the rest of the season. Oh man, yeah, that is a tricky one. I mean, the Rosenthal does look like he's got it back, right? I mean, he looks. Like the guy who he was, maybe not fully the guy who he was in St. Louis, but he does look like he's got some of that swagger back. But still, Montero is the guy. We're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. And the fact that he has that uh, that, that certainty, has that comfort level, no one else really in that bullpen who you fear too much is going to uh, be able to pitch up to his level. I still think that Montero would be my pick here. Montero is one of my favorite guys, clearly, the rest of the way. 
let's lump in Ty Buttry with this group. How does he stack up? Of the names we just discussed, I mean, how many of them do you prefer to Ty Buttry at this point? I think a fair amount. I think I would take Buttry over Anthony Bass. Um, I, I wouldn't take him over Wick. I wouldn't take him over Montero, obviously. I don't think I would take him over Keone Kayla just because of the stuff. Like, I'm so confident. Like, Keone Kayla may be hurting for opportunities for saves when he gets back. But we know what he is. I mean, he's going to still give you good strikeouts, good ratios, most likely. So I feel comfortable with that. I feel more comfortable with him getting those than I necessarily do with Buttry. Uh, so I would put uh, I would put Buttry ahead of I think only Bass in this group of guys that we've discussed. I think my hesitation with Kella is just that in in a non-COVID situation, I would trust that he's able to throw and do everything he was supposed to do and mm-hmm. just be like totally close to his normal velo for midseason but we've seen so many sharp velo drops around the league that sure. going after anybody sight unseen just seems so risky to me like more risky than usual um, so maybe I'm a tick higher with Buttry than you are but I think Buttry versus Bass is probably where I'm at right now I think Buttry brings a higher strikeout ceiling but just like Hansel Robles there is a velocity drop fortunately it's not as extreme as Robles is um, I, I see this as a, a situation that could become very fluid again. I think Buttry has to be uh, consistent with his slider in particular. It's a really good pitch when it's working for him. If that's not working, if he can't command that and the fastball is lost a little bit, he's going to turn this job over almost as quickly as he was given it, and that's going to be a major problem. Uh, let's talk about a few potential drops and uh, kind of building off of the Texas situation. I mean, if you just spent some fab last week on Jonathan Hernandez or Nick Goody, there's a pretty good chance that you got to turn around this week and probably let him go in light of the news that we received about Rafael Montero being the closer. I mean, I think there's a bunch of relievers to cut, like Craig Kimbrell. I just saw our friend Ian Kahn cut him loose in a 15-team league, uh, the GDD league that I play in with, with him and, and Nando DeFino and a bunch of friends of ours, and it's just like, I don't blame him. Like, what, what are you waiting for at this point? It could be weeks before Kimbrell gets a chance to reclaim that job, and maybe he never does. I mean, I think... It, it, the struggling closer or former closer is absolutely a group that you have to think about letting go. I would say that group probably includes Kimbrel, Sean Doolittle, who had another rough outing. I think he's given up runs in three of his first four appearances. He hasn't had a save yet this season. And Corey Knable, who's been coming in after starters leave the game. He's been entering games very early. He looks like he's nowhere near a save chance right now. I think all of those guys are very droppable this week. I agree with you entirely. On on um, Craig Kimbrell, I was watching the Cubs game and what I believe was his most recent outing. I don't think he's gotten. I don't think he got in. And obviously, they're not playing this weekend with uh, with the postponement against the Cardinals. So I'm pretty sure this was his last outing. And uh, Ross went back to him in another save opportunity. Even after Rowan Wick had got a save, uh, they sat Kimbrell down for a few days and they gave him a clean inning to start a game against the Royals. Uh, it was a game the Cubs were winning by three runs, so very comfortable comes in rocket single off the bat of Salvador Perez then he struck out I can't remember who and then a rocket double that went off the wall on a fly by Adalberto Mondesi and then he was out of the game uh so it's just not there for Craig Kimbrell this season and Sean Doolittle I'm with you there as well uh just doesn't feel like a situation where he's gonna uh, have any sort of uh realistic chance at getting back into the closers chair for Washington anytime soon so all three of those guys Kimbrell, Knable, Doolittle I think are really easy cuts actually this week It'd be cool if there were sponsors for specific players. I mean, it's mean, but like if Rocket Mortgage sponsored whatever <laughs> inning that Craig Kimbrell was going to pitch, like if they could work out that deal, that'd be pretty oh, great. Man. Uh, but man, I, I just I didn't expect him to drop off like this. I, I don't, not I'm not, I don't want to be mean about it. Like he, he's he's one of those guys that I just thought he'd age extremely well because the velocity's been there. I still wonder if he's tipping pitches. Like it just seems like hitters know what's coming, and he, maybe he's not commanding the the knuckle curve well enough, and and that's part of what's uh, causing him all of this problem, right? Is hitters just have to sit back, wait for a fastball, and just tee off on it. Uh, but it's it's frustrating because I thought there was some bounce back potential in Kimbrel this season. Uh, there are some hitters that are are pretty highly owned that I think I'd be strongly considering a drop, at least in more shallow mixed formats. I mean, Andrew Benintendi was lifted for a pinch hitter in the fourth inning on Saturday. It wasn't an injury situation. It was a lefty-lefty matchup that I think they were trying to avoid, so they brought in Kevin Pillar. 
He's been in a massive slump to begin the season. He's lost his hole in the leadoff spot in Boston. Is Andrew Benintendi, at least in shallow mixed leagues, cuttable? I think if you're in like a 15-team mixed league, he's probably more of a reserve for a week, wait and see, and maybe cut him next week sort of situation. But he has been just brutal to start the season. Yeah, I think he is. And I think maybe even a little bit beyond shallow, like super shallow leagues. I, I've never been a Benintendi guy. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is something that not this bad, but something along these lines felt like it was realistic to me. Uh, the fact that he's not going to be leading off, like that's not coming back anytime soon. I don't think he's suddenly going to be back in the leadoff spot at really any point for the Red Sox this season. I think you at least have to operate as though he is stuck hitting, uh, you know, not in the leadoff spot for this team. So, I just don't think there's a whole lot here. I mean, the power was never really anything to uh, to write home about. Uh, that 20-homer year back in 2017 uh, was pretty clearly, pretty easily a fluke uh, exposed the next two seasons. I just really don't think he's going to offer you very much if he's not leading off. Of course, he can steal bases, but got to get on base to steal bases, and he just hasn't shown us anything yet this season. So I would be comfortable cutting him in shallower formats, and if I was really pressed with a tough decision and he was one of my cut options in deeper formats, I'm not saying I would drop him, but I do think that it's something where you can. I think you would have to be put in a tough spot. Like, you're not going to be dropping him outrightly in 15-team 15 15 team leagues, but... If you find yourself in a position, I would say he's no longer someone who you have to just assume, oh, I can't cut Andrew Benintendi. I think he at least can be part of that discussion. Yeah, he's not uh, undroppable at this point. Right. And, uh, I think you have to at least consider it in certain circumstances. I think the other group of drops that people are probably thinking about this weekend are the players you were waiting for to either get a job like Yasiel Puig or prospects to get promoted. Like If we don't see prospects coming up by now, should we believe they're actually going to come up? I mean, I think Yasiel Puig seems like an easy cut. Like, he's not really yeah. on anybody's radar right now. Maybe the Braves circle back and and bring him in. I mean, they've had some some issues with the bottom part of their lineup. But they got Nick Markakis back, so I don't think they need Puig as much as they did mm-hmm. after Markakis opted out. So that's pretty complicated at this point. I keep waiting for the Tigers to call up Mize and Scooble and Manning, but even off to a decent start, they haven't done it yet. So how much more patient are you going to be with talented players who don't have a job yet? Is there anybody in particular that you're really struggling with, whether it's the guys I mentioned or Alec Bohm or Dylan Carlson or any of those prospects that we've been kind of hoping for uh, as impact players this season? Yeah, I think you pretty much have to let those guys go at this point. I mean, we're comfortably past the, the service time shenanigans point of the season. So you would think that these teams, if they wanted to get them up ASAP, that those guys would already be up. The fact that we haven't seen him suggest that maybe the urgency just isn't there for the teams this year. And they can, as you pointed out, I believe on Friday show, they can hold them down all year and play the service time shenanigan game again next year and get a you know a full more full extra season out of them again. So at this point, I think you just have to be comfortable with the fact that you could cut him and he could get the call a week later and you could be fighting for him in fab. Obviously, that's not the outcome you are looking for, but it is just so hard to let a roster spot burn and burn and burn with no end in sight. And that is the situation that we have reached with these players. The one guy who I would say that I would still hold out of this group is Carlson, just because of the fact that the Cardinals have had just this insane situation with COVID-19. Obviously, it's going to be a while before we see them. But the difference for them is they've only played five games, so we don't know for sure that the Cardinals weren't going to get Carlson up right after the service time shenanigan game was over for them. That could still be something that's in the cards for them, and so I could see holding on to him, but still, you're going to be waiting a while with everything that's going on with that team. Yeah, I mean, I would think that if they resume play this week, we could finish the upcoming week in a situation with Dylan Carlson playing for the Cardinals. Yeah. But... They already have had the Monday game against the Pirates. That's been postponed, and Mm -hmm. it's only 11 a.m. Sunday morning. A lot could still change between now and when waivers run, and a lot could change again on Monday. More details could emerge. More positive tests could surface, and if that happens, we start to whittle away at another series for this Cardinals team. It's been madness. I mean, I think the absences of players, which we expected, it's been worse than we thought because on top of – virus-related stoppages, injuries have been off the charts high. And if you haven't had a bench full of healthy players who are available to swap in with a lot of multi-position eligible bats, 
you've fallen pretty far behind in playing time in the first couple of weeks, and getting it back is just going to be an uphill battle all season long because it's going to be a war of attrition really all season long. We had a bunch of listener questions that came in. One of them was about the Cardinals. That was from at Fantasy Capper. from Andy. Uh, so holding on to Dylan Carlson, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you, but like if you had a fringe kind of a, like a like Matt Carpenter in a shallow or mid-sized mixed league, a guy that is starting to show some serious warts and now they're missing a bunch of games, are you, are you willing to cut him loose or are you willing to cut guys loose who have been placed on the IL with the virus because it's going to take a couple of weeks for them to come back. It's not, you know, the condition itself as much as it's just the time it's going to take for them to start getting back on the field and giving us the stats that we're looking for, right? So where are you drawing lines as far as letting some Cardinals go just given the variables that they're dealing with right now? A lot of guys on that team who I'm willing to cut. Uh, I'm not cutting Jack Flaherty, obviously. I'm not cutting Paul Goldschmidt. I'm Probably not cutting Colton Wong. Um, I'm not cutting Dylan Carlson, at least not yet. But almost anyone else on that team, I would be pretty much willing uh, to let go. It's just so many unknowns with that squad. We don't know who is going to be part of the team when they ultimately do get back on the field. Like We can't say for sure who is going to be able to play right away when they resume play. So with all that uncertainty happening, I don't think any uh, anyone outside the obvious is someone who you need to be absolutely protecting as you're making your moves here this Sunday. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of players have been uh, diagnosed with the virus. Uh, Ryan Helsley was among them later in the week. I, I don't think you want to wait for him. I think you know, Giovanni Gallegos is probably going to get saves for this team whenever they're actually playing again. But uh, Tommy Edmond might be in the group of Cardinals that I would I would be patient with as well. Mm-hmm. I think by all indications, he's going to be able to play when the schedule resumes. But if you have borderline Cardinals err on the side of drops just because of the missed time, uh, you can't afford to wait two, three weeks for most players right now. You get to be basically an elite or borderline elite player to stick on a roster with any sort of multi-week absence in this shortened season. Uh, Joe writes in, this is at the McHugh, rank the multi-position guys. He includes Joey Wendell, Eric Sogard, Dylan Moore, Nicky Lopez, Jake Cronenworth, and even Chris Owings, if that is your thing. I will state again for the record, that is not my thing, but six games at Coors when you're playing every day, that is my thing. And see, I, I mean, with this group of guys, like, I think there's uh, some value in short-term thinking with uh, with that, right? Like, I mean, e- even in deeper leagues where guys like this are owned, like, how much is any of these guys going to move the needle for you? Wendell, Sogard, Dylan Moore, Nikki Lopez, Cronenworth, Chris Owings, like, I just can't see any of these guys being season-long meaningful contributors to your team. So I would be relatively comfortable playing almost like a fantasy football style uh, carousel game at this position or at this roster spot and cycling guys in and out based on uh, who's swinging a hot bat, who's got a good series of matchups or or environments to hit in as Owings does this week with all the games uh, in Colorado. I would be more leaning on things like that rather than thinking that you're going to strike gold for the remaining seven weeks of the season or whatever it is exactly uh, on any of these guys. So it's hard for me to rank them exactly. I would be doing more short-term thinking. If I had to go for one over the rest, gosh, I think I, I still think I would lean toward um, Eric Sogard just because of the fact that he does have, uh, at least for the time being, a regular spot in Milwaukee's lineup, and we do think that offense is going to get better sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I do think the fact that he's high in the order, whereas a lot of these guys get buried in the bottom, kind of makes him mm-hmm. stand out a little bit as a better longer-term play. But I would prefer to try and go week by week. I would take Chris Owings for this week, reevaluate next week. I mean, I think the challenge here, too, is that playing time for a lot of these guys does fluctuate. Jake Cronenworth played a lot because Eric Hosmer was out all week. Is he going to potentially take time away from Jerks and Profar going forward? Hard to say today, but in the next few days, maybe we get some clarity on that, and then maybe... Jake Cronenworth and the Padres find Coors in the next week or two, and he is playing more, then he becomes the best option of the bunch. So I'm kind of right there with you. I mean, I think Joey Wendell gets platooned, so you're not really going to see everyday playing time there. I'm looking at their schedule. they got a couple lefties coming up this week. I think my runner-up, if I had to pick one guy who I think is going to play a lot, just looking at the longer view, is probably Dylan Moore. I think it's just because it's a rebuilding situation. There's definitely some power there. 
Really not sure about the plate skills. He struck out a third of the time this season. He hasn't drawn a walk yet. You look at what he did last year when he came up. He did walk a little bit, 25 walks and 282 plate appearances, a little below a 10% walk rate, so that's fine. But I think he's going to strike out to get to that power. And I do think you look at a guy like Dylan Moore, and he does chip in a little speed. He's a flawed player, but the bottom can drop out any time. If the Mariners get to a point where they see somebody else who they think is a more interesting option to play, that's what they're going to do. But at least with Moore, I think you get a little more of like a mid-lineup sort of bat, and you do get a guy that can contribute in every category, even if he is a batting average liability. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I mean, I think that's uh, that's a good point. That's something worth taking um, taking forward. So I think that he could easily factor in as uh, as a guy who, if you're really looking for some stability, and I understand that. I understand that. Um, you know, whether by temperament or by uh, tactical uh, want that maybe you just don't want to play the uh the the carousel game and and be making a, a roster move at this spot every single week so i do agree that if that ends up being uh, the way you want to go that more would be someone who would stand out uh, along with sogard from the rest of the group got another question here from simon this is at simon raquel thoughts on pitchers auditioning for two three and four innings and faring well he includes umberto mejia and ryan castellani mejia of course a marlin castellani uh, is a member of the Rockies, and he have a chance of sticking and worth jumping on early. So clearly, it, we can go beyond these two guys. I mean, the Marlins, they're just trying to find innings anywhere they can, and if you ask me, who is Humberto Mejia, and what does he do, uh, I don't have a, a great off-the-cuff answer to that question, but I do think when you start looking at just where they're at as an organization and how well he pitched in the low minors... He's interesting, right? I mean, like a 68 to 19 strikeout to walk at low A last season, 21 to 5 and 23 and two thirds innings with a promotion to high A, low twos ERAs, sub one whip. Like, those are great results. Like, there's potentially something there. But at the same time, this was a guy that was going to spend all of the season probably at double A and triple A. At most, he was going to get a September call up if we played a full 162 this year. So we're asking a guy to jump two levels and hold his own. I know he looked good in terms of the strikeouts his first time out. I think there's a little bit too much risk here, but I think this type of pitcher, the guy that is more of a follower, multi-inning reliever, as we've said going back to draft season 2.0, these are guys that can play in most mixed leagues. And Castellani, just the fact that he's got to deal with Colorado kind of yeah. bumps him off my radar. I'd say of the two, I like Mejia better, but even still, I think the Marlins are asking a lot of this guy and he wasn't on the radar as like a even like a back end top 300 top 400 prospect if i if i don't see a guy on the back of like james anderson's prospect list it gives me a lot of pause because he ranks a lot of players he does it really well and if you don't see a guy even buried in that list he's pretty far off the radar so he's definitely more of like a watch list guy than a must add sort of player right now yeah you hit really the specifics on the players uh pretty much out of the park there. So I'll just focus on the tactical value here. I think it's a, I think it's a smart way to be thinking. I think Simon is on the right path here where you can maybe mine for some value um, in players like this. I don't know if there's anyone out there that uh, fits the bill just yet, but it's something that I would be paying attention to all season because all it takes is right a couple of good outings in this role to at least secure some sort of role. It doesn't even need to be someone who gets to, you know, start and is tasked with throwing six or seven innings every single time out. Like if Mejia can do this and be a two or three inning guy pretty consistently every time he takes the ball for the Marlins, there's going to be some value in that. So I do think that this is a, a, a class of players that is worth paying attention to. I just don't think there's anyone out there right now who we need to be aggressive early on just yet. I'm looking at the Marlins prospect rankings over at Fangraphs because the work of Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel is outstanding. Kylie, of course, with ESPN now. But Mejia was 35th in their Marlins prospect rankings. So, I mean, you're, you're asking a lot. Like, there's there's a chance he's useful. There's a chance he's good. But there is a much greater chance that this just doesn't work out, especially as teams get more looks at him uh, in the weeks ahead. 
I uh, should mention before we sign off, you can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. Everything we do is included with a subscription, so you can check out my ads and drops column. You can check out Eno's stuff. You can check out Beller's stuff. Uh, I know you've been writing some fantasy football uh, content recently as well, and we're happy that, that the fantasy football season is rapidly approaching, so you can get all of Jake Seeley's rankings, everything you could possibly want, all under one umbrella. And, of course, with team coverage, league coverage for all the teams and leagues you care about, it's pretty much the best value in sports journalism at this point. All right, Beller, I think that covered a ton of ground for uh, for this week. Uh, any other parting thoughts here before we sign it off? Just hoping for the best, right? Another week of hoping that the MLB can do something that makes it look a little bit more like NBA and NHL, even though they're living life outside of a bubble. But uh, that's, uh, that's where I'm at with MLB. I think that's where we're all at with MLB probably until uh, 2021. Just sitting here hoping that the Cardinal situation begins to improve, really, because that's obviously the most troubling situation around the game. And also kind of holding my breath that we don't get another rash of injuries on Sunday that turns the fab process into... Uh, a total nightmare like that was the yes. case last week it felt like yes. an all-day sort of process so hopefully this pod was helpful hopefully the ads and drops piece this week was helpful as well as always if you have questions hit us up on twitter he's at m beller i'm at Derek van riper that is going to wrap things up for this episode of the athletic fantasy baseball podcast we are back with you wednesday with under the radar 